Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we step outside of Charlotte. We don't do this very often, but I thought it was a good opportunity that we were presented with. Um, we have Ben Boyer on the podcast today. Ben is the founder of a company called R zero. Um, it is a kind of an infection prevention, uh, tool, a product that they launched, um, right in the middle of COVID, uh, 19. So they launched concept idea back in March of 2020. Um, so it's a, it's a, um, it's a neat product. Um, they're growing rapidly. They've raised a boatload of money. Um, we wanted Ben on the podcast or, you know, Ben joined us on the podcast to talk about rapid growth, how they've done it and everything else. But the, the other side of Ben is Ben's been in the venture capital world, um, previous to this has funded a number of successful startups that you'll recognize as we talked through it briefly. Um, and so he made the crossover from, you know, venture capital to being a co-founder um, and as somebody that successfully invest, invested in venture capital over the years, we thought it was an interesting way maybe for our audience to learn how he's approaching building out his, um, his company, um, how he viewed some of the companies that he invested in, et cetera, et cetera. So um, great company, um, really sound mission. Um, having a lot of success, raised a lot of money, putting their product in the right places to help treat, um, you know, or help disinfect important parts of our economy. So, but also a good learning lesson for today. So hopefully you enjoyed this podcast with Ben Boyer. All right, Ben, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you on with us today. Thank you, William. So, um, so you're joining us from Salt Lake City today, right? Uh, actually, Park City. Uh, Park City, sorry. But, but not too far from Salt Lake. Close enough for us folks out here in Charlotte. <laughs> um, so if you could, because most folks here on um, our, our listeners probably don't know who you are, if you can give us that maybe a little expend, expanded version, um, you know, 90 to 120 second commercial of, of who Ben Boyer is. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so uh, up until uh, March of 2020, I've I worked in venture capital um, and uh, had spent the past 20 years of my life in that capacity. Um, I'm one of the five founding partners of a firm called Tanaya Capital, um, and we manage uh, about a billion and a half dollars. Um, and uh, when COVID hit, um, I felt this uh, uh, compulsion and desire to, to get involved. And that led to starting R0, which um, has really begun the next chapter of my professional existence um, and, uh, and helped launch that startup. But above and beyond what I do, I, I live in Park City, as, as previously mentioned, with my uh, wife, Joanna, and my, my daughter, Mackenzie. Okay. So, awesome. So, um, let's dive in a little bit. So, we'll spend some, as, as we talked about, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about the, the venture world that you lived in. Um, and then we'll spend a lot of time talking about the business building that you're doing now. So 
um, you've made some good, you know, um, Tanaya has been around for 12 years now, right? Was it 2009, give or take? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Tanaya was, a, a, actually a, a spin out of Lehman brothers. So, uh, Lehman brothers venture partners was formed, uh, in, in the late nineties. Um, and, uh, and so the five partners that, uh, make up Tanaya, um, ran the venture capital portfolio for, for Lehman brothers. Um, we, uh, we spun the business out um, as we were uh, working on our fifth fund and uh, subsequently raised uh, fund six and, and fund seven, which uh, we're just uh, finishing up uh, right now. Um, but yes, it's, uh, it, it's been around as Tanaya since 2009. Okay. So talk to me for a second about that. So what's, what was it like to work with Lehman Brothers on a successful side as the unsuccessful side was happening? Yeah. Um, so I started working with Lehman Brothers in 1998. So I was yeah. I, I was there for a long time. And um, other than uh, two years when I went to Stanford for business school, um, I that was my job. Um, so I've not had a lot of jobs in my life, um, unlike a, I think a lot of younger people where um, you're, you're seeing a lot more uh, changes uh, professionally throughout a career. Um, you know, the, the early days of, of my experience at Lehman were uh, on, on the investment banking side. Uh, I worked in the technology practice, and uh, it was a great experience for me insofar as my background was not finance. Um, I did not have an accounting background. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, I would say, probably no better place to learn that um, than one of these large investment banks that have a formal training program where they'll, they'll put you through a lot of classwork and show you how to model. Um, and so my first year working in investment banking was just huge learning curve, really, uh, you know, learned a ton. And, and despite uh, brutal hours, I, I think I, I did, in fact, enjoy it. Um, midway through my second year, Lehman raised their first outside venture capital fund. So Lehman actually got in the venture capital business in the mid 90s, but that was strictly a balance sheet effort. Um, and so they were using the firm's capital to make uh, investments uh, uh, in technology businesses. And based on the success of, of those investments, um, they went out to um, outside limited partners and uh, raised a formal fund. Um, and so I was really fortunate that they were uh, recruiting people into that fund just as I was uh, finishing up my second year um, in my two-year analyst program. And so uh, I was lucky enough to get the job and moved to the Bay Area. And I, I began working in that capacity in, in early 2000. Uh, which is obviously an interesting time to, to, to learn about the venture industry. But um, I stayed for, for two years uh, and then uh, went to Stanford, as mentioned, um, and uh, came back after, after business school. They offered to pay for it if I came back. Uh, and, uh, and then I stayed with the group. Um, I was lucky enough to get promoted to partner um, uh, and then stayed with the group uh, uh, as we raised uh, our fifth fund. Um, and, uh, and then the Lehman bankruptcy happened, which was, uh, very exciting to say the least, um, <laughs> just mechanically speaking, um, what was outside of the, uh, bankruptcy filing was all of the investment management elements of Lehman brothers. So these were all very profitable businesses. Um, they're based on, uh, fees that, that are driven off of assets under management. And so, uh, Newberger Berman, uh, the private equity division, which I think was about $30 billion at the time of the, the bankruptcy, and then the high net brokers. Um, and so um, we were off to the side. Uh, interestingly, we made two investments during uh, the bankruptcy proceedings um, to show you that uh, we, we, we continue to operate, although I, I, I would, would not call it uh, business as normal. 
Yeah. Um, but, but we determined that our best path for our limited partners was uh, to spin the business out um, as a standalone entity. Um, and uh, Lehman was a, a 20% LP in the fund we were investing out of. Um, so we found a secondary player to come in and buy Lehman's LP interest uh, in our uh, in our active funds. And uh, the five of us, uh, the managers, the, the GPs, we bought the minority interest uh, in the GP that we didn't own. So Lehman contributed 20% of the capital and they owned about 20% of the GP. Um, so it ultimately was a, a great transaction for us. Um, we got our independence. Um, our fund size remained the same. So a group uh, bought the, the LP position and stepped into the unfunded commitment. And, um, and, and then we bought our piece. And um, you know, the, the LPs all had a get out of jail free card when, when you're, you're dealing with a bankrupt en entity, but they all stayed with us. And so that commitment to us means the world. Uh, interestingly, the state of North Carolina is a, a big LP in that fund and they've been, okay. um, they've been terrific to work with, but, uh, but yeah, it worked out well. And, and that fund has performed exceptionally well. And, and so everyone, everyone made the right decision by, um, you know, uh, allowing us to continue on, uh, in 2009. Yeah. So, um, to a certain extent for, for y'all within Lehman, it was a blessing, it was a blessing in the process, right? I mean, you hate to say the bankruptcy and failure of a large national um, treasure was a, a blessing, but it kind of was. Yeah. It, it, it absolutely was. Um, I had my, my daughter uh, two weeks after uh, um, the, the bankruptcy. And so I, at the time, I wasn't entirely sure how this was all going to work out. And, um, but it worked out incredibly well for us. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, the LPs have been rewarded with strong performance. Um, I think we've performed as a partnership better given our independence. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, it, the, the, the fall of the financial system for a period of time actually uh, worked out pretty well for us. Being that close to the fall of the financial system, Ben, did, did y'all take away anything that maybe other folks didn't um, or yeah, it was, I, it's, it's so much business as business that it just is what it is. So we had a, an office, uh, in, on, on Sand Hill road in Menlo park, uh, in, in California. So we were really off to the side of the mothership. Um, yeah. we did not go back to the trading floor or, um, the private equity division actually had separate offices. So honestly, I was shocked by the whole thing. And I feel like I've learned a lot about it. Um, reading too big to fail and hearing stories by, uh, you know, people I knew that were more on the inside, but um, no, I was candidly shocked by the whole thing um, and, and, and absolutely not prepared for it. I think, you know, what it has told me um, is that these black swan events seem to happen more often than um, you would think. Um, and so I started working in venture capital in, in 2000. I got to see the NASDAQ lose 80% of its value from peak to trough. Um, you know, I, I lived through the, the Lehman bankruptcy um, and, and really some scary days just for our whole financial system. Um, and then we now have COVID. And so I, I think, you know, as investors, I, we're probably a little more cautious. Um, we're, we're trying, I think we, we, we probably try to, to look around corners uh, a little bit more than maybe organizations that um, haven't gone through so many of these, you know, recent upheavals. Um, but the, the one, you know, personal lesson I've, that I've, I've really realized is, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's only going to be over once, you know, the whole thing, well, the world is only going to end once. And I think these things are, are traumatic and difficult, and you have to make 
good decisions as a board member and an investor. Um, but this, there's a resiliency among the, the American people in the system that I think is, is, you know, is something that's very special. And so um, I'm long US. I think we, 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 we don't tend to get ahead of the problem, but we're, we're pretty good at fixing it after it emerges. Yeah. So you come out of that, um, and I'm just looking at some of your, um, your portfolio companies or decisions that you've made, right? I mean, it's an impressive list. I mean, um, it's names that, you know, a lot of names that just about anybody that listens to the podcast or shoot for that matter, half the people walking around the streets that Charlotte would recognize, right? I mean, Eventbrite, Kayak, Lyft, Spiceworks, Tenor, um, you know, different companies that you've made investments in. I mean, you've had, you've had a, um, a, a good run out there with the fund and personally yourself that's been involved with, right? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been really good. I'm, I'm fortunate to, to call my partners, uh, my partners. Um, they're good people first and foremost. Um, we've had a ton of stability among the partnership. Um, and I was the last uh, partner to be added to the fold. Um, and, and that was back in, in 2007. So um, it's been a, a really terrific uh, experience to initially learn from them and work alongside them. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my portfolio, I'm, I'm certainly proud of, but my, my partners also have uh, amazing companies that they've backed as well. So how do you just walk us through that for a second, right? Because I mean, we're here on, in, again, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, we're continuing to learn and grow as a community and investors and everything else. Um, how do you filter through your investments, right? What shows, what shows internal process like? How do you um, how do you try to look out into the future and hear the story that's being pitched at the same time, um, and separate, you know, the, um, the entrepreneur's enthusiasm from the way you want to see the world? Yeah, I think, uh, we, we, we looked back at past investments. Um, it was, you know, maybe a year ago, I forget exactly, or 18 months ago. And we were trying to figure out what percentage of our portfolio was thematic in nature, meaning we had an idea. Um, there was a thesis that we wanted um, to go explore. Um, and then we, 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 we came up with a, um, a strategy and an investment we wanted to make versus what comes over the transom, where you have a relationship with uh, an earlier stage investor and they you know, like you and trust you and respect you. And so you get the, the phone call from them. Um, and I think for us, it's 80% 80, 80 of the investments that we have historically made have been really thematic, uh, where we're doing research about um, a space um, and trying to figure out, are there companies today that um, would fit the profile of something we'd be interested in? Um, just to, to highlight for, for your listeners, um, our typical uh, entry point in the company is the second institutional round. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why the over the transom matters as well is there's uh, you know, a, a, an earlier stage investor or institution that's already in the company. Um, and, uh, and so we do get a lot of, of intros into businesses. Um, we end up executing a smaller percentage of those companies when we don't, uh, are, we're not aware of the business before they fundraise. Um, and the reason being is um, you know, investing in venture, every company you invest in looks very expensive at the time of your investment. There's, there's no cheap deals. And if there are cheap deals, I suspect they're going to massively underperform the expensive deals. Um, but you, you have to have conviction to be willing to extend yourself and pay a very high price for something, really forward invest. And it's harder to do that when you're not as familiar with the space. If you just get a phone call about a random company 
you're not as likely, even if you like the business to have the conviction or willingness to um, really pay up for it. Whereas if you um, are doing a fair amount of work around a space, you have conviction that it's a big market, um, that this is a good way of addressing the problem that the market is sort of developing around. And you, you, you have belief that the team has the capability to, you know, build the product and then scale the organization, you know, it's much easier to, to get there on those. Yeah. I mean, really sound almost to a certain extent to like a, like a growth mutual fund manager, right? You have to be willing to invest in the, um, in the growth aspect of it. Um, and be willing to admit that sometimes you're going to overpay for it. And sometimes that's going to come back and bite you. And, but if you're right on your theme that, um, and you've done your due diligence on it, that those investments will come through you on come through for you on the back end. Yeah, I, I think there are some similarities. I wish we had the same level of data that a mutual fund has. <laughs> we're, 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 we're really sort of digging deep and trying to extrapolate on, on very few data points, but, but you are right. Um, I mean, these businesses are incredibly fragile and these spaces um, sometimes show one thing and end up looking very different in the future. And so, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, and I hope your, your listeners, particularly the, these angels that are investing in the earliest stages of a company's development, um, this is high risk capital um, and the rewards can be tremendous, but um, there are lots of things that can derail a good idea um, early on in the company's life. I mean, it could be access to capital. It could be the execution, um, bad strategy, and it could be, you know, a, a competitor like Google giving away a free product. So I've seen everything, all of these, uh, these, these things happen. Um, but yeah, if you, if you get it right, you can see, you know, tremendous outsized returns, which is why, you know, this industry is, is, um, is what it is. Yeah. So, um, on y'all's point is y'all make an investment in a company, right? And you see the founders, continuing to explore the concept um, and they, they start to look in a different direction than y'all had originally thought they were going to be running down. How do y'all circle those wagons or do you let them go or how do y'all handle that internally? Yeah. I mean, it's, if you're a board member and most of the investments that, that, that we make, we're, we're leading a financing round and we're taking a board seat. So we're an active participant in the management of the company. Um, those decisions, if you are pivoting the business or if you're, um, really changing strategy, they're, they're really not a surprise. Um, you know, that's, that probably uh, is, you know, that if you ultimately make the decision to go in a different direction, there's probably been, you know, dozens, if not many dozens of, of calls and meetings. Um, and, and the board's job is to really stress test ideas. Um, so if the, the team is saying, look, we, we think we're going down the wrong path, we'd like to do this instead. Um, the expectation is that they've provided a lot of data to substantiate their their, their new direction. Um, and so the board is going to push back and, and again, not to, not to second guess the team outright, but just to ensure they've done their, their, their diligence and work. Yeah. So as we were talking earlier, I mean, obviously you've been, you've been in that space for 20, we'll call it 20 years, right? Yep. Um, give or take 21 years. Um, and pandemic hit, hits, and you've watched companies succeed and fail and do everything else for years. Um, and pandemic hits, worst pandemic that we've seen in a really long time, 100 years, 60 years, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you just thought, hey, look, I'm going to go take a whole bunch of risks and start a new company, right? <laughs> I, so. it, it, it was a bit more organic than that. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, I'm, I'm sitting on my couch in, in you know, I think it was the early March watching, you know, the world fall apart. 
And for me, it reminded me uh, a lot of the same emotions I had around 9-11, September 11th. Um, you know, I remember where I was when I heard the planes, uh, you know, hit the buildings. And I remember thinking to myself, this changes everything. Um, I was actually at a Whole Foods uh, in Los Gatos. I went there for my, my wife uh, and it really sort of clicked um, just how scared people were. Um, you couldn't buy toilet paper and paper towels and people had on um, just tons of protective gear. Um, and, and I came home and I, I, I provided that analogy to my 11 year old daughter and wife about th that's what this feels like. And I started talking about all the changes that took place after 9-11. We formed the Department of Homeland Security. We hired 14,000 TSA agents. And to this day, you can't wear your shoes or carry a water bottle through security. Um, and, and what I didn't know in, in early March, but we know now is against every dimension, this is far worse. It's global in nature. The loss of life is, is far more extreme. Um, you're gonna have you know, scores of people with long-term health consequences. And the economic damage is, is far worse than what we saw in, in 2001. So um, I didn't obviously know that, but I had the same sort of feeling and emotion. And it led to a bunch of research. That's how I would define the earliest days of R0, was me uh, candidly staring at my wall, trying to come up with an organization that's done a good job at dealing with pathogens. Um, and after a couple of days of, of literally staring at my wall, I came up with a hospital. Um, if you think about it, ever since the advent of the hospital, you've got the one communal gathering place for the sick, and it's always been that way. And if generally speaking, you and I can go into a hospital and receive care and treatment, um, despite the fact they've got, you know, C. diff and E. coli uh, and, and uh, pneumonia and MRSA and uh, seasonal flu and COVID and all these other pathogens, um, they must be doing something right from a risk perspective. And... Uh, and so, you know, that initial thought um, ultimately led to a bunch of research into, well, what do hospitals do? And that's where I learned that they basically focus on, on hands, um, air, and surfaces. Um, hand hygiene is incredibly important. Um, it's actually one of the big societal changes that took place after the Spanish flu. Um, and it was a Red Cross nurse that recognized that there were much worse outcomes with those frontline workers that weren't practicing hand hygiene. Uh, they deal with the air and there's typically regulations that dictate how many air changes per hour are required in different parts of the, the hospital. Um, and then they, they deal with surfaces and that's where I came across um, uh, UVC light and how, uh, you know, the, the better funded hospitals in the US typically use UVC light as a touchless process to disinfect the air and the surfaces after they've done whatever form of manual cleaning and disinfection. And I really just fell in love with it. Um, you know, the idea that light could be the answer, um, totally sustainable, totally food safe. You could leave an apple out while you run it and then eat it. Um, and, and, and that to me got me, uh, you know, really focused on this more and more. Um, I recognize my limitations as a, a you know, a company builder. Um, I co-founded a venture capital firm, which uh, candidly feels like cheating uh, now that I've worked <laughs> in this capacity for a while. Um, but I, I reached out to uh, a, a friend of mine. I was uh, um, on, on his board. He was the head of product and engineering uh, for one of my companies. And he had a very interesting background. Um, this business was a mobile marketplace. Uh, so very digital software oriented um, uh, ar architecture and infrastructure. Um, but his background is actually mechanical engineering. And he built medical devices at Abbott for a number of years. And then he went on to a, um, a medical device startup. And 
um, I knew I needed someone like him to help sort of figure this out, to, to determine, can we go build here? Should we build here? And then he roped in a, our third co-founder, um, who's uh, a, a very a very smart young man um, who had just moved back from China. Um, uh, he had been the CEO of a company um, that was based there and he got a buyout and, and he happened to be back in, in, in California at the same time that we started to do a lot of work around this. And, and that ultimately is, is what led to the decision to kick this off. But we did a lot of diligence. I think, you know, it's interesting. My, um, my contribution to the, to the company in the earliest days was, I think I really looked at it from an investor's perspective. Um, and so we were really trying to figure out what did this market look like? Who are the competitors? Um, you know, how did pricing work? Um, what's interesting about this space is um, the body of evidence is very long and rich. Um, the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1903 was awarded to a guy named Neil Spinson for his work with germicidal UV in the treatment of lupus. Um, it's been used to treat wastewater since the 1910s and HVAC since the 20s. Um, and so we had a lot of science that we could get our arms around to understand, like, would this work? Does it work? Um, and we, we initially couldn't figure out why all the systems um, that, that, that have this rich body of evidence um, are in hospitals. Um, and it was a conversation with a guy who ran uh, Cal OSHA, the, the California OSHA um, uh, division, um, and uh, that really helped sort of explain to us how pricing worked and how this market was really built. Um, and, and so, again, I think that was uh, a lot of me with my investor hat on, let's do due diligence before we, we commit ourselves to this. Um, but it, it, as I said, it happened organically. Um, and it's been, you know, one year, uh, we celebrated our first birthday in April um, of this year. And it's been incredible, although it's been the hardest I've, I've ever worked. Um, yeah. Do you think your background as an investor? Um, do you think it it hamstrung the business in the early days with overdue diligence? Or do you think it gave you what you needed to execute better as the business really started to figure out how it was going to go forward? Yeah, I, I, I don't think we over we overthought the early part. I mean, I, I think, um, look, we were all committing a huge amount of time and effort. Um, and so I think it's important to really, you know, uh, I wouldn't say we were an expert in the market um, you know, uh, by the end of March, but we, we, we knew a lot, um, and we all felt like this had to happen. Um, there was a realization early in the process that we would have started this company with or without COVID. Um, and the only way we could get there is, is we did a lot of research into disinfection, um, cause it, it, at its core, that's all we provide. Um, mm -hmm. so as opposed to using Clorox wipes, use this. Um, and, uh, and, and again, so I think it was advantageous. A lot of that research is, has really informed our product roadmap that plus our customers. And so, no, I don't think that slowed us down. I, I think, um, the nice thing about this, this threesome of founders is we're all very different. Um, so, uh, Eli, who's the individual that moved, uh, back from China is originally from Santa Barbara. Um, he is an incredible salesperson, um, and, uh, just, a very, uh, very, very empathetic and, and just, you know, amazing, uh, connector with, with anyone, um, that should have a relationship with R0. He represents us, um, you know, really candidly better than anyone else in the market. Um, Grant is technical, um, and, uh, and, and he's, uh, done an amazing job as a first time CEO, 
um, learning how to be, you know, a manager of all. Um, but I'd say his superpower is really around product and what he has been able to accomplish led to um, Arc, our first product. And from a price to, to performance perspective, there's nothing like it anywhere in the world. We put out more light than $100,000 plus systems in hospitals, and we charge as little as $17 a day, and we make a healthy margin. And so um, my, you know, I'd say my strength, I, 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 I definitely, um, I definitely don't feel like I, 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 I bring to the table as much as those two guys, but it was really around the business plan, fundraising, thinking through the business model. Um, and, uh, and so I think having the three of us with these different skill sets really allowed us to move faster than most companies, just because we had one person focused on sales, one person focused on the product and initial company building and me handling, um, you know, fundraising to ensure that we could actually go build this thing. Um, and then over time, I, I do a lot of our senior team recruiting. So, um, mid-March 2020, world's falling apart. You tell your wife that you want to start a disinfecting company. <laughs> yeah. Um, good, good, easy conversation, or should you take a couple of nights to warm up to it? No, I, I think, uh, I, I wish she was here. I wish she could answer this question for you, though it's just speculation on my side. I think she saw how hard I was working on it before I said, we're going to go do this. Yeah. And I think she probably appreciated that we really cycled and spent a lot of time on it. Um, the, the one thing I will highlight is, um, myself included, uh, I don't think uh, either of us recognize what sort of time commitment would be required to get this business off the ground initially. Um, I'm still a GP at Tanaya, which means I'm continuing to manage out my, my existing investments. Um, I do my partner meetings on Mondays and, 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 and the like, um, but I'm not making new investments. I'm, I'm spending that time working on this, but um, this has become, you know, all encompassing at nights and on weekends. Um, I'm consistently getting much less sleep than I did before this. And I'm seeing them and doing sort of fun activities with them uh, at, at, at a very, very small clip. So there's been a lot of sacrifice. Um, I feel like my sacrifice is the easiest just because uh, I, I have some level of control over it. Plus, um, I feel this sense of urgency. You know, there's a pandemic going on and our goal is to help, um, is to get a very inexpensive, um, high quality product in the market um, that can save lives. Um, you know, for her, it's, it's uh, a little bit thankless um, that, you know, I'm not able to, to be uh, as involved as a husband or, or a father. Um, and so I have a ton of gratitude and appreciation for, um, you know, her willingness to sacrifice, but we're happily married. I, I can say that. Um, but it, it's definitely a very different lifestyle than what I had um, before, uh, but before we started the business. And I, I did feel like I worked very hard on, on Tanaya, and, but, but this is, doesn't seem to ever end. It's like drinking from a fire hose. And yeah, no, entrepreneurship is definitely a family effort. Um, there's no question about that, right? Yeah. Um, so what, um, uh, oh, let's talk about the product for a few minutes, right? So sure. it's a it's a, so we're audio only, so folks can't see the beautiful um, product that you have behind you. Um, how did you, and again, you started doing research, and so how do we come up with what what is there now? Yeah, so um, the UVC space, as I mentioned, it's old, um, very proven. Um, so a lot of the, the technologies that were initially developed in, in, in the early 1900s are, are still you know, being utilized today. 
Um, but what was interesting in terms of the systems we were looking at, uh, really what we came up with and mapping it out was there's, there's sort of three buckets. Um, you've got the stuff you can find on Amazon or just doing a light Google search. It's true snake oil. I mean, it might have a UVC bulb, um, but typically they're, they're talking about UVC as opposed to their system in terms of efficacy. And we know the power output of those devices. It doesn't do anything. I mean, truly nothing. Um, then you've got legacy players uh, that have sold systems um, that are, are, are powerful, um, but not typically powerful enough that you'd see them in a hospital. Um, and so uh, we, we saw those units. Um, and, and then there's the um, products that uh, have uh, uh, historically been sold to hospitals. And those are, those are good products. Um, they put out a lot of power. They usually have some level of, uh, you know, connect connectivity to to capture data about, you know, when, where, and and and, and how long it was uh, rooms were disinfected, and so we were drawn to that, um, and we looked at those products. What we 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 couldn't understand though when we looked at them is why they were so expensive, um, and I won't name the the competitors, but we have a, a handful that sell them for one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars per per light. Um, when we look at these products, they're just lights with timers. Um, it shouldn't be $125,000. And so we started to think, well, how could we bring something to market that has the same level of efficacy, meaning output of power, um, but is much more cost effective? Um, and our thesis was, this is a very proven form of disinfection. It has some advantages uh, when compared to chemicals and manual uh, disinfection, um, but it's ultimately been held back um, because of cost and so everything we did was how do we how do we make it better how do we make it cheaper more accessible and so um as i mentioned it's it's as as, as low as 17 dollars a day or a little over 500 dollars a month um the system is incredibly simple to use um so if you think about who cleans in a hospital um it tends to be an infection prevention team um so these are higher skilled uh janitorial uh workers that um, are trained and, and understand risk and, and how to mitigate them um, we initially targeted uh, all of the other industries that have never had access to this type of technology, so schools and restaurants and, and gyms. And so we felt it was very important for us to design something very simple. Um, we have four buttons, on and off, up and down is to set the cycle time or to scroll through pre-programmed rooms and then run. That's it. The design target was a microwave. We embedded an LTE chip in, in the device. And that provides us with a couple things. One, we can program it for each of our customers. Um, so a, a typical school protocol will be all the classrooms, the teacher's lounge, the restrooms, and the cafeteria. And so we can actually program the device so that each room shows up on, um, on the UI. And, uh, and, and then the operator just has to use the up and down arrow to say, I'm in the restroom. Um, we know the size of the restroom, so the device knows how long to run in, in that, that same space. That same LTE chip will provide us data. So uh, our customers have access to a software um, uh, product where they can log in and see, uh, did the disinfection they asked to happen actually happen? So they can see every room, part of their protocol. Um, and, and that's actually something that's really powerful because if you think about disinfection, it's historically been an invisible process. You know, you ask people to do it when they're done cleaning something, but unless you're there, you have no way of verifying it. And so we're providing that first level of visibility into disinfection for um, in this form of an audit trail for compliance purposes. Um, so the system puts out tremendous amount of light, more light than those $100,000 units, um, very easy to use. Um, and, and that combination is really 
um, allowed us to, to, in essence, almost create a market. I mean, we're still not a huge business when we've only been in business for a year. Um, but, uh, but we've, we've sold this product in this, into, uh, industries that have not historically ever purchased something like this. Um, and obviously COVID is, is the great enabler. Um, but, uh, but we are, we are winning consistently against electrostatic spraying, um, forms of chemical disinfection and manual because this is ultimately cheaper, um, doesn't require you to hire additional janitorial staff. Um, there's no ongoing chemical costs. Um, we even replaced the light bulbs as, as required. Um, and, uh, and, and again, you get the added benefit of it's sustainable. You get the visibility through the audit trail and all that. Um, how do you, um, so you mentioned earlier that $125,000 per unit, right? Um, is your, is your competitor? And then you mentioned that you also have competitors that sit on Amazon that are essentially selling crap, um, at the end of the day, for lack of a better term. Um, how did how'd your pricing model come about, right? How'd y'all run through that? How'd you get to it? Cause you run up against it. Well, if it's not $125,000, is it any good? Yeah. Um, and then you're being lumped into the other categories. So how do you price it effectively? Yeah. Um, to, and also, right. You're also creating a new market. And whenever you yeah. create a new market, you've got pricing resistance anyway. So, sure. so a lot that went into y'all's pricing strategy. Yeah. So, I mean, in the earliest innings of this business, we weren't even sure it was a for-profit business. Our goal was to just help um, and get this out there. Um, ultimately, we realized that we could um, provide something that provides uh, enhanced disinfection um, at a much smaller cost than other alternatives. Um, and, and as we started to think about the bigger picture and the fact that, look, every year other than this year, 40 million Americans get seasonal flu, 20 million Americans gets norovirus, more people die from MRSA um, than HIV, homicide, Parkinson's and emphysema combined. There's gonna be a demand, there's gonna be a level of demand in, in a market for this type of thing forever. I mean, you, you know, E. coli outbreaks and, and the like. Um, and so the, the idea around our, our pricing was really um, to understand the value uh, that we were creating for, for organizations um, uh, when compared to their alternative forms of disinfection to ensure that we were cheaper. Um, uh, I would like our pricing to come down. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that will likely happen as we see scale advantages in terms of production and building more. Um, but I would love for us to continue to innovate um, and figure out ways to produce this system for, for, for less and less. Um, but your comment around, you know, uh, does it work? We've sold it into organizations that um, don't believe it. Um, we have ha- we've created testing data. So we sent four of our devices to a third party ISO certified lab. And the devices were tested against live human coronavirus, feline calicivirus, which is in the, the norovirus or stomach, stomach flu uh, uh, family, um, uh, E. coli and staph. And in every instance, we got to a four log reduction in seven minutes in a thousand square foot room. So uh, we have proof um, and that proof is incredibly important as part of our uh, sales process to ensure that, yeah, this isn't snake oil. Um, this market is generally not regulated. Um, and so anyone can, can produce products like this where none of them are technically medical devices. Um, and so really we have to show you with, with actual data that's not our own, um, that was procured from a third party that shows you that um, you can actually compare us against the $125,000 units and we have the ability to, to do everything they do plus. 
Um, so your first target was schools. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah. Um, part of the motivation for the, the, the sort of forming the business, uh, did come from watching my, my daughter, uh, have her school shut down. And so, um, really, you know, I think there was a lot of focus on, on that type of organization. Um, I think there's a huge importance in getting kids in school for lots of reasons. Um, and, um, and so uh, that I would say it was one of the, the key inspirations um, in the earliest days. And, and we've, we've sold it into hundreds of schools now. So we have, um, you know, really great adoption there. Um, it's a wonderful tool past COVID. So, um, you know, if seasonal flu and norovirus can knock out a classroom. A lot of schools struggle with mold. Um, we, we learned that. So these systems will um, kill mold and, and, and fungus and, and things of that nature. So there's um, a real use case, uh, you know, in perpetuity. Um, and the operational model of the school is pretty simple, which is clean the classroom as you normally would, take out the trash. And when you're done, you just wheel the device in, plug it in and run a, a, a disinfection. Um, if the classroom's a thousand square feet, it's seven minutes. While the classroom is being disinfected, the janitorial team is in the next classroom cleaning. So it's not really adding much in the way of time or energy and certainly not requiring additional staff. Yeah, and so in the, when they're done with the next room, they go grab it from the other room, pull it back in, and you're off to the next place, right? That's exactly right. Um, super simple. Um, and, I mean, for that matter, it's organic, right? You're not putting chemicals into classrooms and on desks and other things that kids touch and then stick in their mouth, right? It's exactly right. And the residual chemicals are very problematic, particularly for the younger kids that are going to put their hands in their mouths. Um, there, there's, uh, we've had a number of conversations with uh, janitorial teams that um, – you know, are, are now using a lot of very harsh chemicals to uh, provide disinfection because of COVID and people are having respiratory problems. Um, we ran in and won't mention the hotel, but one of the, the cleaners refused to use the, the bleach based product that she had been instructed to because it was burning so much. And so she dilutes it down um, significantly um, so that she doesn't have a, a burning throat. Um, but the, all of the efficacy data that um, has been created around that product assumed it was the full concentration. So you're running into situations where, um, you know, I, and I don't blame the, the worker for it. Um, you know, candidly, she should probably have a respirator if she's gonna have to, um, you know, spend her entire day using chemicals to disinfect. Um, but there is a better way. Um, you know, this is our first product. Um, we have a, a couple of additional SKUs coming out um, uh, later this year, um, but there really is a, an opportunity to provide this enhanced disinfection um, and make it part of the new normal where it doesn't add a lot of time and you can ensure that that classroom uh, that next day at school has been disinfected that you walk in there and it's clean um, and and do so you know 17 bucks a day um, and and not uh, put the applicators or or the students or faculty at any form of risk so uh, classic entrepreneur um, problem right you go out you see an issue you solve it um, initially you're thinking schools because you want your, to, to a certain extent, you want your own daughter back in school and everybody else as well. You're trying to, you know, help society. Um, and then you, you immediately go into an example. I mean, you were already talking about hospitals, right? Cause the success that hospitals has had is the product model, but how soon was it that you realized hotels and the boatload of other places that you could put it into? Was it instantaneous or did it just kind of start to trip through? It was pretty quick. When, when we realized how quickly we can disinfect different size rooms, we recognized that the, ap the application was very wide. Um, this is one of the most horizontal businesses 
um, I've ever invested in or been a part of. Um, you know, we, we've sold into jails, um, sheriff's offices, restaurants, um, industrial bakeries, food distributors, uh, 10 professional sports teams, hundreds of schools. Our largest customer is a big financial services company. So into the enterprise, um, we have hotels and restaurants. Um, our second largest customer is um, a assisted living community. I think that's gonna be a huge use case going forward. So um, we, we realized it pretty early um, and, and also COVID was forcing a change of behavior across the board in all of these, these different types of organizations to change, to do something different, to ensure that precautions are being um, put in place uh, to allow either the organization to reopen or stay open you know, during the pandemic. Um, so we, we got it pretty quickly. Um, I, what I would say about how horizontal it's been is it's, it's been a blessing and a curse. Um, it's easier to sell if you are just an EDU solution. Um, mm -hmm. It's harder when you're trying to, you know, build the right marketing collateral and the like for all of these different industries. We've gotten really good with ROI calculations. Um, and I think, you know, we're furthest along with assisted living communities. We understand their expenses and how they think about their business and how a system like this can, can pay for itself very quickly. And the same is true on the EDU side. Um, and so uh, we're getting better across the board at all this stuff. But having this sort of uh, horizontal demand right out of the gate um, was great. Um, we were selling a lot of stuff, but um, we're now learning how to market uh, better in each of the each of these verticals. Yeah, so I mean, it's, um, I would imagine some of at least some of it's inbound, right? It's not all outbound. Um, you know, as somebody that's seen businesses scale as you've invested in them over the course of the last twenty years, how did you say, wait, wait, wait? Hold on a second, guys. We've got to focus here, here, here. We can't do we can't do thirty at one time, yeah. right? How how much how much different was it from the investor hat to the actual um, entrepreneur hat that you had yeah. to wear, right? It's like we got to do it, we got to do it, we got to do it. It's um, I mean, look, we we, we will sell to anyone that wants the product, but, <laughs> uh, but we we absolutely are focusing our our marketing resources on certain verticals where we can go really, really deep. And so where we're seeing a lot of repeatability um, in assisted living, in EDU, professional athletics, um, we're doing more and more there. Um, ultimately, we'll get good at, at, at going after all of the, the large verticals. Um, you know, I, there's areas where we just, we, we have sort of a, uh, an asymmetric advantage. So think about food-related businesses. It could be a restaurant, it could be a, a, a distributor of food. It could be a bakery, as I mentioned. We, we have a large bakery as a customer. You, you really can't spray in those environments. Um, you worry about the chemicals and the residual. And so um, there are things that UVC can do that, that you, you, you can't get out of other places. So um, we'll get there. Um, I'm incredibly proud at, at how quickly we've, we've scaled the business to date. And I give us um, you know, a good grade as it pertains to um, our go-to-market thus far. But um, but yeah, no, I, 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 rather than try to, you know, go deep on 10 things, we're going to go deep on three and then we'll add three more once we, we do go deep on those first three. So, um, great. So quickly grade yourself as an entrepreneur from the investor side, right? How have y'all done over the course of the last 12 months? Things you do different <laughs> things you do differently or no, is you're executing uh, as, as you can. Yeah. I mean, look, we're, we've made mistakes. I, I, you know, every company has, um, you know, I, I, Tanaya has never had a enterprise, uh, portfolio company, um, you know, go from, from zero to, you know, 15 million in bookings in one year. Um, so, you know, we had to develop, uh, you know, we had to stand up a company, we had to hire a team, we had to build a product 
Um, and so it was, it was Herculean. Um, and so I give us an A in terms of execution thus far. Um, but no, we weren't perfect. There are lots of things that I, I know we could, we could do better and we will. Um, and, you know, we've, we've been rewarded. We have exceptional investors. We're backed by the earliest investor in Tesla. He's still on the Tesla board and, and SpaceX. Uh, we just signed a, a term sheet on a, a, a Series B financing um, with additional exceptional investors. And so um, I think the market is saying we're doing a pretty good job um, and, and we're certainly giving it our all. Um, but yeah, no, I, we're, we're far from perfect. And I, I would say that the, the three of us are the biggest critics of the business, which is probably what it should be. Um, the only way for us to get better is to acknowledge what we're not doing right. Um, that's actually one of the things that you might find interesting is in my past investments, um, you know, I've been on lots of boards and there are those entrepreneurs where everything is rose colored. Um, and so you get the board, the board materials and, you know, it's, there's no lying, but it's just, I'm only going to highlight the things that are working well. Um, if you were to look at our, our board books, um, you would see a lot deeper dive into the things that we feel like we can do better or, or need to be fixed or things like that. Um, and, and so if you juxtapose those two, um, you know, uh, companies just through their board presentation and, and materials, I think you might think the other one is doing better. Um, but the reality is we're doing a lot better. So I, I'm very comfortable with this, um, this way of building. I think this is candidly how all companies should be built. All that said, you know, the, the negativity um, uh, or, or being, um, being so hard on yourself, you can't let that sort of overtake the whole thing. I mean, there are obviously dozens of things we wish we were doing that we're not doing yet. Um, and there's, there's only a, there's a limit to how quickly you can grow. I mean, we're up to 48 employees and I think we'll, we'll double the company between now and the end of the year. Um, that's really hard. Um, it's hard to, you know, go find a talent um, and, and, and bring them on and onboard them and get them to be a part of something. And so, um, uh, you know, there is something to be said about the rose colored glasses and celebrating your wins a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. we need to do more of that, but we, we, I'd say overall, we, we, we executed pretty well. But I mean, if you highlight the negative in your board meeting, I mean, you've got all these smart people around you that have seen all kinds of different problems in the past, right? You highlight the negatives, you're going to get some feedback on, um, experiences and stories and things that have worked in other similar circumstances, yeah. right? If you don't, if you don't highlight them, you never get that, ex yeah. that shared experience and you can't learn and grow through it. Right. I mean, you absolutely got to share the negative. Yeah. William, I, I wish you could give a pep talk to all, all of my, my, my past companies. I mean, some of, some of the executives do a great job of this um, and just sort of, you know, just say, look, you know, this is working and I'll just highlight these three great things, but let's spend the meat of the meeting talking about all the things that are keeping me up at night and, and candidly, you know, it does keep you up at night. There are yeah. things that, you know, and so you're exactly right. I think what you run into, um, and oftentimes this is a younger entrepreneur, um, is fear of, of losing their job. I mean, at the end of the day, the job, the, the, you know, even if, if, if I found founded the company or someone founded the, the business, um, you really report to the board. Um, and if you're not the right person to lead the company, it's their obligation and responsibility to, to find someone that will, will do better. Um, and so, you know, again, startups are super hard. Um, it's not a straight line, even the most successful ones up into the right. Um, there's going to be ups and downs. And um, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's probably more, more often um, these really young entrepreneurs that want it to be perfect and are very scared of um, disclosing when things aren't working, when the reality is, 
yeah, a lot of stuff isn't working in the earliest days. You're, you're, you're figuring everything out. Yeah, something, something's always not working, right? And probably multiple things are always not working. Yep. Um, how, soon did you, how soon did you raise money? Uh, we raised uh, a seed financing in May, um, and that was... was uh, that product development? It was, yeah, pre-product. You know, this is our idea. We're very excited about it, let me tell you. Um, and it was an odd time to raise because it was the meat of COVID. Uh, 2020. Um, and, uh, but we were, we were really fortunate to be supported by a lot of friends and family and, 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 you know, angels. And we had one institution that came in, which is, uh, it's a group called SOSB Hacks. Um, SOSB is a, um, they run a, uh, an incubator called Hacks, um, which is called the Y Combinator of hardware startups. And uh, we were moving too fast to go through an incubator program. So we, we didn't do that, but, um, but they still made the investment. So we were the, we were the first company that they, they had ever invested in without um, assets to go through the, their, their, part, their um, accelerator program. And um, so that was the one small institution. And then things um, generally you know, went well and we raised our series A in August. Um, and uh, that was led by Ira Aaron Prize at DBL Partners. He's one of the, the founders there and he's on the board of Tesla. He's incredible. Um, uh, the, our board representative from SOSV, uh, is Duncan Turner and he's also incredible. I want to highlight both of them, but, um, really fortunate when we, we raised, uh, the seed, it was massively overcommitted. And when we raised the, a, uh, we had, um, you know, five offers, uh, within a week. So, um, it did seem to resonate with people, um, what we were working on, um, and, uh, and, and, and we were really fortunate to be able to get Ira um, involved in the project. And, and the Series B has been the same. Um, I anticipated uh, fundraising for um, most of this month, but we had uh, a group that, that came to the table very quickly and we've added a couple other people. So fundraising thus far for us has not uh, been an impediment. We've, been, we've had full access to, um, it, it, candidly, as much capital as we were willing to take on. And, and there are limits given dilution um, so we're, we feel real fortunate in that capacity to, to, we got other stuff to focus on and worry about, um, as opposed to, you know, are we going to, um, make it through, uh, this next quarter? Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes to speak a lot about, you know, um, you know, a couple of different components of, of, of a company, right? I mean, you've got team, um, you've got, um, you've got capital or access to capital, um, and then, you know, theme, right. Or what I always like to refer to the wins at your back. Right. So you're, you're in a place you're in a, um, in an area where the market's going to continue to develop into your, your wheelhouse. And so you've got, you've got lots of opportunities to continue to win in different places. We, we have to, yeah. I mean, we're, we feel incredibly fortunate. I think, you know, look there, we, we worked really hard to be in the position we're in today with a good product, um, an excellent team. I mean, I haven't, talked enough about, um, you know, the broader organization. My co-founders are amazing, but um, we have uh, eight uh, past founders or CEOs on our, our team. So that's rare. Um, it's very hard to do that. Um, uh, you know, there's a typically a lot of egos when you're dealing with so many different, you know, very experienced professionals. Um, and we've done an amazing job of, of pulling together people that are very mission driven um, they want to uh, really reinvent disinfection for the modern era um, and use modern technologies like AI and IoT and software um, to provide a, a higher efficacy, a sustainable, and one that provides visibility. Um, we've also had, you know, I'd say very egoless leadership. 
Um, there are, you know, uh, a bunch of people that are being sort of just asked to go fast, figure it out, and, and they're, they're rising to the occasion. And that, I think, more than anything else is what really enabled us to do what we did in that first year. Um, and it's great. I mean, as I said, we, we, we get a good grade for, for year one, um, but the bar will be much higher for year two. Um, we will be a Series B company as opposed to a Series A. Um, we've learned a lot in a year, um, and uh, my expectation is we will uh, rise to the occasion, but we, we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. See, so you, you you've been an investor. You've done due, due diligence for years. You've gotten better at it as a result of, um, of seeing successes and probably seeing some failures along the way as well. Yep. Um, and so you've, you've learned and grown a lot as an investor. Um, what have you learned over the last 12 months as an entrepreneur that helps you again as an investor, right? Yeah. I mean, I always thought of myself as um, someone that had empathy for the, for the team uh, for building. Um, I, I knew it was hard. Um, I, I, I knew that, you know, the, the, the companies, these startups, the team has a portfolio of one. In venture capital, I've got a portfolio of 60. Um, and when one's not doing well, I might have one that's doing well. And, you know, at the end of the day, I can sleep okay thinking about that. Um, but it's very different when this is it. Um, this is all we're eating and breathing and sleeping. And so I, I, I know, uh, I, I, I really feel like I was someone with empathy, but I, I, I have another level of that. Um, I can't really feel like I need to go meet with every past entrepreneur I backed, you win or lose, you know, company succeed or fail and give them a hug and just say, I, I greatly appreciate you. And I, it was hard, it really, this is super, super hard. The uh, getting something going on. Um, out of nothing is, is, is a really difficult endeavor. And um, it doesn't always work out well. Um, but in most of those situations where it doesn't, it means that team was just working feverishly to try to right the ship and, and get there. Um, and, and again, I think we all should be uh, giving those people a lot of acclaim uh, for their effort and their willingness to, you know, try to do something out of nothing, build, build something that, that didn't previously exist. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hard nut to crack, right? So, um, and then cracking it still doesn't mean that you're going to be successful. You've got to climb through all the other holes to, to get there. Um, totally right. And I would imagine you've seen it here over the more so over the course of the last 12 months than you did before. Right. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's funny as I, I, I think about some of the comments I've made in the past as a board member, and I, I've often focused on strategy. That's something I felt comfortable with. And, uh, and I, I'd say generally, you know, good commentary for me, at least that's what I've heard. And I, I, I look back and I think more times than not, I was sort of, I was onto something, but having the right strategy and being able to execute to that strategy are very different things. And sometimes it requires different people that you, you know, capability within the organization, some strategy ideas, you know, have to deal with partnerships. And now you're talking to someone who is not as invested in your great idea. And so just maneuvering those things is, is hard. And, and I, again, I, I, I know that a lot of my commentary and in board meetings is really focused on that. And, and there are things I want to be doing with this company that we're not yet doing. Um, it will take us time to get there. Um, but I, I, you know, in the back of my head, I, I know where we need to go and I, I know we have to get there. Um, and I, 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 I will not stop until we do. But I also recognize that, you know, the having a good idea and then executing against that idea are very different things. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a great job. So congratulations so far on the progress. 
Um, really, I mean, you know, again, as we were talking, you know, before we started the record button and, you know, we, we speak to a lot of folks here in Charlotte and, um, in the Raleigh Durham area from an entrepreneur perspective and from an investor perspective as well. Right. But, um, just, to you know, be around somebody and, and talk for the last hour on what you've learned over the course of the last 20 years, how you're applying it and how you're scaling a business that's really from almost from day one taken off like a rocket ship has it's been tremendously fun for the last 55 minutes and um i know as you've already alluded to on multiple occasions you got a lot of stuff to tackle so we're gonna let you get back to tackling those things but thanks for carving out 60 minutes with us so far today thank you william i uh, appreciate it and um, i hope your listeners enjoy the conversation thanks a lot man good luck program and not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and the opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.